Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Thank you, Crystal. Man, you guys don't know, but she was really nervous to do this. So it didn't show at all. It didn't show at all. Am I, am I on? I am on, right? You guys can hear me? Okay, I can't hear myself, which might be a blessing today. I don't know. So... <laughs> Hey, uh, whether you're here on our campus or you're joining us online, whether you're new to Sunridge or you've been coming here since uh, way back in our middle school days, I just want to welcome you. If you don't know me, my name's Britt. I serve the church here as a lead pastor, and we are currently in uh, the study of the life of Moses. And the narrative we're going to look at today kind of sets up round two of this battle between uh, Moses and Pharaoh. And God is going to prove once and for all uh, to the Israelites that he's been watching all the time. He's seen what has been happening, the injustice that has gone on, and the cruelty that's been perpetrated by Pharaoh and the Egyptians on God's people. And God is going to do this, as Crystal just read, uh, through stretching out his hand with multiple signs and wonders, and as Exodus says, mighty acts of judgment. And ten times in all, uh, God shows his mighty hand. We know this as the plagues. You might have heard this, the Egyptian plague. So the plan for today, it's like we've got a lot of ground to cover and some controversial stuff. So today what we're going to do is, first of all, we're going to look at the patterns of the plague. And then we're going to talk about the purposes of the plagues, which they appear random, but they're not. And then, as usual, we're going to wrap up at the end with some things that I think that we can all learn from this uh, unique passage. Now, if you haven't been with us, I just want to like catch you up to where we are, and if you've forgotten, this will help you too. Uh, Remember that Moses and his brother Aaron, uh, as God's representatives, have already gone to Pharaoh uh, with God's demand, his first demand, it's like, let my people go. And Pharaoh responded with all the arrogance of someone who is not only the most powerful person in the region, but also thinks of himself as a god. And uh, Aaron and Moses are laughed out of Pharaoh's presence. Not only that, but this demand that they brought to Pharaoh just causes him to increase the burden on God's people, the Israelites. And at this point, even, even the Israelites are furious at Moses and Aaron because their situation has gotten even worse. And now Moses and Aaron, they just look like chumps. So God is now going to give Pharaoh the proper motivation. He's going to give him some incentive, and he's going to use some tough love in this situation. And in your notes, if you, if you got a note sheet on the way in here, there's a, there's a table, a, and I'm going to put the slide up here as well while I talk about it. Um, there's patterns that we see in the plague. So if you have a note sheet, look at it, follow along up here, because I want you to see some big picture stuff that goes on with these plagues. First of all, you see in the first couple of columns, you see that there are 10 plagues in all, and uh, you see the associated passage, right? 
Now, what this table is going to show you is the plagues aren't random, but they're in groupings of three or triads, as you can see, as by the shading. Uh, you see it in groups of three. And in each series of three plagues, there's a pattern in which Pharaoh is forewarned for the first two actions or plagues, but the third is released without warning. So, in, for instance, in the first triad, you have blood, then frogs, and in each one of those plagues, Moses comes and announces to Pharaoh, this is going to happen. But in every instance in the third plague of the triad, nothing is said. It just happens. And the same is true for insects, livestock, and then boils, and then hail, locusts, and then darkness. Now, you can also see in the column, column five, that Pharaoh's magicians are only able to replicate the first two plagues. The author doesn't tell us how they did it, whether by sleight of hand or satanic power, and, but maybe after they added frogs to Egypt, Pharaoh said, that's enough of replication. We, we don't need any help anymore. So, and then in column six, you can see from plague four on, Israel is spared. So uh, that is that they're only directly affected, the Israelites, by the plague of the blood, the frogs, and the gnats. So as these plagues get increasingly intense, God is demonstrating his judgment upon Pharaoh, but his favor for his people. And that is a point that cannot be missed by Pharaoh, which further lets us know that God is specifically targeting him and the Egyptians. Now, you could have had the idea that the plagues were some random punishments that God came up with like God had a plague spin wheel, and whatever the arrow landed on, that was the plague of the day. But nothing could be further from the truth. You can see that there's a pattern to how these plagues come, and they're inflicted upon Pharaoh. But then in the last column, which it's gone now, but that's okay, um, you can see how each plague seems to be an assault on a particular Egyptian god or goddess that is supposedly designated as the god or goddess over that event or that creature or that cosmology. Now, we use this word plague, and in most English versions of the Bible, that's, the, that's how this word is translated, plague. But really, literally, it means to hit or strike. So in other words, with each one of these signs or wonders, these mighty acts, as it is called, um, God is striking a blow, assaulting a false Egyptian god with a purpose, with a purpose behind it to dramatically demonstrate his power and authority over all. And that brings us to the purpose of the plagues. You guys still with me? Yes. All right. So the purpose of the plagues was to confront and embarrass these individual gods, proving that Yahweh is the one and only true God. And we're going to click through these, so you've got to keep your thinking cap on, all right? Raise your, wave your hand at me. Slap your neighbor. Okay, I'll check in with you in a few minutes here. Make sure you're still here. So first one is blood. Exodus seven nineteen. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. And then in verse 21, it happened, the fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. 
Now, well water in the land at this time was often contaminated, so the Egyptians depended upon the Nile for everything that had to do with clean water, bathing, cooking, cleaning, laundry, and drinking. And on top of that, fish was an Egyptian staple. So this first strike by God hits the biggest needs of the Egyptians, a major food and water source. And likely, I mean, we can just imagine that Pharaoh is kind of insulated from the impact of this because in the palace, I'm sure he has plenty of water and food stored up. And what he doesn't have, he can easily confiscate as the king of the region. But just imagine what this first plague is like for your average Egyptian. No potable water and a major food source shortage. Remember, we went crazy when we couldn't get toilet paper couple years ago. So the Nile was so central to Egyptian life and culture that there were many deities associated with it. But Happy, I'm going to put a, uh, an image of them up, I'm going to put each one of these up here, um, was known as the god of the Nile. And he's depicted as an intersex being. He's male, but he has breasts. The Nile is life to Egypt, and it typically would flood annually. And the flooding would distribute these deposits of rich and fertile soil in all the lowlands so they would be rich in nutrients. And, and so they also depended upon the Nile for their crops, for the soil to be fertile. But it was also the Nile, remember, that Pharaoh threw Hebrew babies into uh, to be um, eaten by crocodiles or drowned. And so now the god Hapi is turning on him. Seven days later, we have the second plague, frogs. Now you say, frogs, that's not so bad, right? But look at how the author describes the plague of the frogs, and you get a better picture of how terrible this was. Exodus 8, 3, the Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and into your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. Boom. Can you imagine frogs everywhere, in your bed, in your kitchen, in your conference room at work, in your clothes? And you say, well, why didn't they just kill them? Well, because frogs were a sacred animal. Here's a statue from the period of a frog. They were, uh, Egyptians were forbidden to kill frogs. And in fact, even if you did it by accident, that offense was punishable by up to death. So they can't eliminate them. In verse 13, the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses and in the courtyards and the fields, and they were piled in the heaps, and the land reeked of them. Stinky dead frogs. Can you imagine? Now, what's interesting is frogs are associated with fertility and birth in Egypt, likely because they would become so prolific in their frog cycle, you know, in the spring. So the Egyptians had a goddess for fertility and childbirth, Heket. And here's an image of her. And uh, she, she's the one on the right, on her knees. She had a woman's body but a frog's head. And I think I had her for English in eighth grade. <laughs> so with this plague, God is defeating their fertility goddess and demonstrating his authority over her. Then number three, gnats. And remember that every third plague is not pre-announced. Moses and Aaron don't go to Pharaoh and say, 
Let, our, let God's people go, and if you don't, this is what's going to happen. This one just happened, so there's no warning. And in Exodus 8:16, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. Now, even though the plague here is translated gnats, often the precise identity of this insect is, is a subject of debate. It could be any kind of annoying bug that's not deadly, like mosquitoes or lice. If you've ever been swarmed by gnats, you know what it's like. They get in your nostrils and your eyes and your mouth and your throat. But Egypt didn't have a gnat god. But the most significant thing about this plague is not the gnats, but where they came from. Aaron struck the dust of the ground. And here's a replication of a wall painting from the period uh, with the god Geb lying on the ground, which was his domain. Geb was the god of the earth and dust. And Egyptians called the soil of the earth the house of Geb. So even Pharaoh's magicians can't they can see the connection between this plague and Yahweh. In chapter 8, verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And after this, this is the last time we hear of the magicians. And now we go into the second triad, the second grouping of three. You guys still here? Okay, you want to keep going or you want me to just go to the, the story at the end? Okay. Okay, so flies. Exodus eight twenty one. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh again, and they say, if you don't let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, all your people, into your houses. The houses of your Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. Now, again, the NIV or many English versions say flies, but it could be all kinds of insects and pests, including those that bite, like fleas or ticks or chiggers. You have to be from the south to know what that is. Spiders, scorpions, ants. It could be potato bugs. Ugh or roaches. This is one of the things that I love about Southern California. We just do not have many bugs here. And uh, I grew up in, in Miami, which had uh, every bug you could ever imagine. Anything that could bite, sting, or bug you, we had them. And uh, in fact, I was telling someone the other day that like mosquitoes were so bad in my neighborhood. I remember growing up as a kid back in the day, and they would bring this mosquito fogger through the neighborhood, it was like a truck, and it'd be pulling this kind of trailer thing, and it'd be putting out this fog that killed mosquitoes, which is probably full of DDT. And we, the children in the neighborhood, we thought it was super cool to run right behind it, back and forth through that fog. <laughs> that explains it. <laughs> so anyway, it's never bothered me. <laughs> so flies are the first plague to be inflicted upon the Egyptians only. In verse 22, God says, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. So with this plague, God begins to shield the Israelites. Now, now there was no fly God, but there was Capri. It was a lesser God who had the head of a scarab beetle. You can see him here. Scarab beetle was sacred to the Egyptians because they believed that they just came to life out of nowhere because uh, science wasn't advanced enough. They didn't know that scarab beetles laid their eggs in dung in the street. Wherever they found it, the sun came out and would warm this up, and these eggs would hatch. And so it would look like these bugs were coming 
from nothing. So Capri was associated with the sun and creation, much like the flies seem to come from nowhere with the morning sun, but they actually came, you know, they were, they were associated with the dust. But none of this, none of this is sufficient to convince Pharaoh, and he continues to harden his heart. Uh, plague five, livestock. With this plague, uh, Pharaoh's warned, Chapter 9, verse 3, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses, donkeys, and camels, and on your cattle, sheep, and goats. So at this point, the Egyptians are not just terribly uncomfortable, but now they are without meat and milk. By the way, livestock at this time are not just, you know, for meat and milk. They're also for transportation and for construction. So this would make worse the food crisis, but also it would start to cause an economic crash because all of their functions cannot carry on. As the cattle were so vital to the economy and life in Egypt, they were revered as sacred. And the goddess Hathor was a goddess of beauty. And uh, even though she had the head of a cow, she was the goddess of many things, like love and beauty, dancing, fertility, and pleasure. She was even the patron of cosmetics at this time. So the wearing of cosmetics was considered a form of worship of her. And the pharaoh of this time was fanatically committed to the goddess Hathor. In 1906, they discovered a painting on a wall that depicted the Pharaoh kneeling under this cow god, drinking her milk. And I imagine that Moses told him that was an utterly dumb thing to do. <laughs> Did I milk that joke a little too much? <laughs> so I didn't make that up. It's one of the, the people that I've listened to over the years, and I thought if it goes really good, I'm going to claim it is mine, but if it goes bad, I'm just going to blame, blame Lon Solomon. God bless you, Lon Solomon. Pharaoh's response to this, uh, his heart was unyielding, and he would not let the people go. Number six, boils. Just when the, just when the Egyptians are starting to think, you know, what else could happen? Boils break out, which are deep ulcers on the skin. And a medical pandemic, pandemic would be an assault on the goddess Sekhmet. Sekhmet was depicted with the body of a woman with the head of a lion wearing a sun disc. She was a terrifying goddess who could cause epidemics. However, for her friends, she could also avert these plagues and cure disease. And so she was also the patron of physicians and healers. And Exodus tells her that the magicians uh, couldn't come and confer with Pharaoh on this plague because they too were covered in boils. So even though this was their goddess and they, you know, they were connected to her, they still had to call off sick. So Pharaoh is still not moved. Then we come to the seventh plague. You want to keep going? Okay, hail. And that begins the third series of three. In Exodus 9.22, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt on people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. Now, we've all seen hail before, right? But this is extra large 
Hale. Cindy grew up in Michigan, and she actually had a car. Her first car was totaled from hail damage. There were so many dents in it, they're like, we can't fix that. So it's this kind of hail, and this, this is hail that, like, remember, everything that's happened to their crops, uh, it is, now it shatters the harvest. Everything that's growing in trees, it breaks branches, it kills remaining livestock, Exodus says. And so a small crack starts to form in Pharaoh's resistance. In, verse nine, in chapter 9, 28, he says, Pray to the Lord, for we've had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. But this is short-lived. Once the danger's over, verse 34 says, when Pharaoh saw that the, fa the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again, and he and his officials hardened their hearts. So this crop-damaging hail is a direct attack on the god Newt. I'm going to put an image up here. This goddess was the goddess of air and uh, precipitation, and she's sometimes depicted as a woman that is bent over the earth like the sky with her head in the west and her feet in the east, and it's not going to come up, is it? That's okay. So it's like she's the sky protecting it all. That's the wrong one. Sorry. What's that? Okay. We'll go on. Uh, number eight, locusts. If, uh, Moses says to Pharaoh in chapter 10, verse 4, if you refuse to let him go, they, the locusts, will cover the face of the ground so it cannot be seen. And locusts were a swarming, leaping insect. I mean, we think of grasshoppers, right, that, that basically devour every green thing that's left after the hail. And so now the nation is starting to starve. Imagine all the, the natural disasters of our day and time and how devastating they are to people. And, but people survive because we have rescue systems. We have FEMA. We have charitable organizations who brings in food and water and housing and bring disaster funds, and none of that is available 3,500 years ago. And to make things worse, all they had to do was look across the border to Goshen, and the cattle are grazing, the fields of grain are rippling in the wind, there's fruit on the trees, and the infestations have not reached them. The god Set, depicted in a variety of animal forms, but here, uh, and most often as a dog-like animal with a forked tail, is the Egyptian god of storms and disorder. This plague could also be associated with the goddess Isis, whose job was to protect the crops, and the, and the agriculture of Egypt. And this starts to convince Pharaoh's advisors. Chapter 10, verse 7, Pharaoh's officials said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? But Pharaoh still is not convinced. And then the ninth plague, which is darkness which, by the way, was the plague that came upon us the last time I tried to teach this. <laughs> if you were here that Sunday, you know that I was going to teach this before Easter, and the power went out. But I listened to God. <laughs> and he said, let my people go, so you'll be out of here in about 30 minutes, okay? 
The third in this series, like the other thirds, comes without warning. In chapter 10, verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that it so dark that it can be felt. And the god Ra, depicted with a head of a falcon, and a cobra as a crown on his head, was the king of the deities and the father of all creation. He was the patron of sun and heaven and kingship and power and light. And now, Pharaoh cries uncle, even though it's temporary. Chapter 10, verse 28, Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. So Moses is, yep. I think you're right. You won't ever see me again. So, guys still with me? All right. So Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh nine times asking him to let the Israelites go. Nine opportunities that Pharaoh has to respond to God and the judgment that God is bringing for the sake of his people. And yet, regardless of how painful or devastating the consequences, Pharaoh refuses to bow his knee to the one true God, Yahweh. And he fully intends to continue his brutal treatment of the Israelites. Now, there's one more plague that we're going to look at next Sunday that will come, and it will finally bring Pharaoh to his knees. It's going to be the death of the firstborn children. So what does this have to do with you and me today? Britt, what are, what are you going to tell me that this, these nine plagues, these judgments of God, what does that have to do with you and me today in the Temecula Valley in 2023? Well, let me first briefly just say that we have to resist the temptation to ascribe every catastrophic event that happens in the world or the people to God's judgment, particularly when, we do, when we're tempted to do so toward those bad people, you know, they or them, because we are not the Israelites and we are not oppressed by Egypt. So for us to see every tragic event as an occurrence of God's judgment, it's not the point here. In fact, I think if we do that, we entirely miss the point. It's incumbent upon us, as we've talked about this before, and, and just quoting, um, you know, the Bible Project guys, John and Tim, um, these stories are given to us to, so that we think deeply about them, and we mull them over and over again. And we, this passage is one of those that we really have to think about. I mean, some of us, we would love to eliminate the wrathful side of God. But here it is right in front of us. And others, the other end of the spectrum, we want to solely claim this characteristic of God and rationalize every hateful thing that we do, all of our negative speech, and all of our condemnation on other people and say, see, I'm just like Moses and Aaron. This is God's judgment. And others just to prefer to ignore it. Like, let's just pretend it's not here. So this part of Exodus, and there are other texts like this in your Bible, they just force us to think about things, uncomfortable things. 
Because what's happening here, is, if we look at it for face value, God is causing pain and death of human beings and creatures. And Exodus says he hardened his heart. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. We're going to talk about that. But of course, the Bible also says, if you pay close attention, that all along the way, Pharaoh is hardening his own heart first. We also have to think about how God applied judgment on people and the consequences that he inflicted affected far more than just an individual or people that were at the very center of the conflict. And every person of faith, whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or, you know, 10 minutes, we have to wrestle with these ideas. And we won't always come to an understanding. In fact, the idea that you, you and I could understand God and be the ones who could declare judgment or not. That's just, that's beyond our pay grade. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but I've been a Christian for a very long time. Sometimes I just have to shake my head and wonder and realize that God is not completely understandable. And if you're like me, you know, sometimes when I come to these passages, I just, I kind of think, man, I wish that story wasn't in the Bible. It'd be a lot easier for me. And, uh, but I think the point is exactly the opposite. I think that here God is revealing a part of his character that is necessary for all of us to have a full picture of who God is, not just who we want him to be, not just our preferred God, but who God actually is. And all I have to do is to explain it all to you easy. few thoughts and we're done. Number one, the situation required the plagues. Required the plagues. Pharaoh's evil reached a level that, a level that required, required God to act. In other words, he knows that Pharaoh is a man so prideful and so powerful that logic and compassion are not going to reach him. And think about everything that he's inflicted on human beings. God is omniscient, and he knows that there is no way, there's no other way for Israel to be freed. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 19, when God was in speaking to Moses in the burning bush, and he said, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless the mighty hand compels him. In other words, God in his omniscience knows that there are people that can become so determined in their destructiveness, in their pure evil, that they will never respond. God knows this. We don't know, but God knows. And there are people in the world that are truly evil. And Pharaoh is far from someone who is just imperfect or made a few mistakes. He is a brutal dictator. And evidently, many Egyptians joined in on that brutality. Now, I can't explain why God acts and why he doesn't. But I said, that's above my pay grade. But just remember, the Israelites have been enslaved in this situation for 400 years. It's estimated that possibly thousands were killed or died. 
during that because of the because of their treatment. He had babies thrown into the Nile River. And he rejected every plea that was made by Moses. And as a result, God brought his judgment in an increasingly intense fashion. And with each plague, Pharaoh is presented with an oral explanation and a warning from Moses and Aaron. And yet his heart never softens, just as God said. The first five plagues indicate that Pharaoh was hardening his own heart. Read it. And it's not until plague six that we see the author describing God as hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I can only offer what I think is the best explanation of that, is that I think that God was accelerating the process to reduce the the destructiveness of Pharaoh and to fulfill God's own purposes. Therefore, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is not unjust, and his bringing of the plagues against Egypt are not unjust. The plagues, as terrible as they were, actually demonstrate God's mercy and not completely obliterating the nation, Egypt, which would have been a perfectly just penalty. And in every case, each of the plagues are an opportunity for Pharaoh to turn and repent. And as I said before, an individual can become so hardened and evil that they're just not going to allow anything to break them. And because of their incredible power, they just go on unchecked. That is still a modern phenomenon. And their evil that they inflict extends to other people, creating exponential consequences that require God to act in his time. And God's wrath then is completely justified and necessary. Do, do you and I get to pick when God does that? No. Have you ever thought, wish, wished you did have that power? I have. And have you ever, like, used your power in a way that later you realized you didn't do it right? See, this is, this is God's area, not ours. But the situation entirely called for God to bring his judgment. Secondly, God revealed his character through the plagues. As I said, we're learning something about God here. The main thing we see happening is there are consequences being brought by God to liberate his people. But the main thing God was doing is answering Pharaoh's original question. Exodus 5, 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know this Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And God decided to show Pharaoh who he was. He revealed his character. The big idea here, and it's, it's just repeated over and over. Let me show you a couple examples. With the blood, Exodus 7, 17. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the frogs in 8.10, tomorrow, Pharaoh said, tomorrow, and Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. 
And with the hail in Exodus 9, 14, I will send the full force of my plagues against you and your officials and your people so you may know that there is no one like me in the earth. Each plague that God brought both demonstrated his love for Israel and his judgment on those that were afflicting them. And so this is revealing something about God's character. God's love is inexhaustible, but the plagues reveal the full character of God. In the plagues, we see both God's justice and his love. Both are in the nature of God. He is all-loving, and he is wholly just. And those qualities are not in conflict with each other. God's justice and mercy coexist in perfect harmony. We see his compassion. 3.7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So he acts with justice in verse 9, so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. So that God's justice and his love in this case require that he acts with judgment. And in order for him to demonstrate his love, he had to apply justice. It was the only way rescue would happen. And Pharaoh has nine opportunities to respond to what God is doing. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And you know, Jesus was the perfect image of God's justice and his love. Remember the Bible describes Jesus as a man full of grace and truth. Those are two qualities that coexist in God and as God's son and human representative on earth, we see both God's justice and his love, his grace and his truth in him. And in fact, the cross is the ultimate picture of God's justice and love coming together. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. God's justice demands judgment on sin. And Jesus went to the cross to bear the judgment of God for our sin. It was because of God's love that he poured out his justice on his own son, that judgment and justice would be satisfied and we could be saved. The question is, have you ever responded to God's love that way? Do you recognize the fact that none of us is perfect? We are all broken. None of us can stand before God and say, you know, God, you and me are tight because I'm such an awesome person. Some of us are better than others. I, I get it. Some of us, some people that have lived have been terrible, terrible human beings. And others have been pretty awesome. 
But none of us can stand before God and claim to be righteous before him. Every human being that has walked the earth has to, that hears the gospel, the good news. The good news isn't that God condemns us for being imperfect. The good news is that God put his justice on Jesus who willingly went to the cross for us. And all we must do is believe in Jesus to accept that free gift. And God brought that across in a different way nine times to Pharaoh, and he keeps turning him away. And each of us have opportunities to respond to God's love as well. I don't know where you are with God. I don't know what, you, you know, like you have a million questions or like you're right on the bubble of like, you know, I almost became a Christian last Easter, you know, I don't know. But what I want to say to you is that God loves every human being and he will go to the ends of the earth in his patience to wait for you to step across that line of faith and, and to just bend your knee to God. And it looks different for us, but I hope that you hear that this story is, is in some ways, it's a picture of what Jesus did. That God did bring justice, but it was also an act of rescue and love for you and me. Don't miss that. And in the quietness of your own life and um, even in your seat right now, if you've never just said, God, I, I, I realize today that you love me in an incredible way and I'm asking you to like come into my life. I receive your love and your grace and your act on my behalf. Do that. And that's a way to open your heart to the love of God. Let me pray for us and then we're going to worship. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.